Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. I've got two women here with me in my home. They're going to talk about um, the sexual abuse, the verbal and emotional abuse they experienced growing up in their home. They are now in their 40s, um, married and raising families, and have bravely stepped forward to share their story. And before I introduce them, the reason we're doing this podcast is for those of you that are in abuse, you can hear two people that are walking your road and perhaps the insights that they will give you will help you and give you hope and perspective and tools to, to do what you need to do. It's also hopefully a podcast that's helpful for those of us that are helping people that are survivors of, of sexual abuse so that we have better tools to support them. It's also for family members. If you have a family member that's a survivor of sexual abuse, that you'll have better tools and know how to help them. Is that okay for an introduction? I haven't even introduced you, but is that okay? Yes. So yeah. my guests on the podcast now to introduce them are Andrea Nehusen. And Andrea, will you spell your last name and just say it for us? Last name is N, as in Nancy, E-A. H-U-S-A-N, Nihusen. And yes, my husband's worth it. I love that. And you are in your mid-40s, mother of six. A recent grandmother has driven from or flown from Reno, Nevada to be here um, to share her story. She's joined by her sister, also in her 40s, younger sister, Amber Ayers. Will you spell your last name for us, Amber? A-Y-R-E-S. And you live in the Dallas area, and you're a mother of five boys. Yeah. So between the two of you, there are 11 children and one grandchild. Yes. And so that's kind of a trigger warning. We're going to talk pretty, I think these women are going to talk pretty openly about their experience growing up in their home. They grew up in an LDS home, their LDS. And um, that is the reality of some LDS homes is the home situation is not safe. and. They become victims in their own home, which is just heartbreaking. So I think they'll pretty be pretty honest about what happened, um, how they turned to priest leaders, um, how the criminal system got involved. And without much more of an introduction, I'm just going to, because it's, it's an important story and there's a lot of parts of this story. So I want to give these brave women enough time to share this story. So with that, I'll turn it to them. Thank you so much, Richard. Um... This is our first time ever really publicly sharing. Um, so yeah, to give a little context and background, we don't want to dwell on this for the podcast, but it's important to know kind of what we're healing from and what we're forgiving. We did grow up completely active um, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, went to primary church every Sunday, grew up singing, I am a child of God. He has given me parents kind and dear. And that's one of my first church memories as a young CTR girl thinking, well, why didn't my, why aren't my parents kind and dear? Why didn't God give me kind and dear parents? So always from a young age was that disparity and that um, hypocrisy was very evident and was just very confusing. Um, So. Definitely the sexual abuse is the thing that um, startles, I think, and and, uh, amazes everybody. 
for good and bad. Um, and it's, it was just our life. Like we knew nothing different. Um, and it, it, it amazes me now as a mother and as an adult, how brazen my dad was in, in his need for always having that sexual stimulus. Um, one of my first childhood memories is having a shower with my dad and very inappropriate things there. And um, just everything from watching family movie nights together, but my dad would grab a blanket and have us sit on his lap with my brothers and my mom just a few feet away. Um, and it, it definitely escalated and progressed into much worse things. Um, oral sex and um, massages and um, things that he would manipulate and, and bribe or, or not really force, but basically everything he could to get us to, to please him. Um, and then when we got old enough where we were saying, no, I don't like that, no, that's when he started his nightly visits, when we were quote unquote sleeping. And there's interesting things um, about situations like this. You know, I ask myself and other people have asked, you know, why didn't you say anything sooner? When you're old enough to know cognitively that this was wrong, why didn't you stop it? Or why, you know, that flight or fight response, what, and this is what Amber said. I don't know if you want to say this, Amber. Well, the people, third response. Yeah, people always say fight or flight, but there's a third response and it's usually freeze. And um, I think most people, when they're put in a situation that's really uncomfortable, the most common reaction is to freeze, not to fight or flight. And I honestly don't remember when the abuse started. It just, my very first memories in life, he was already doing it. And um, in waking hours, like she said, when we were young and just telling us, this is our secret and don't tell mom because she'd be upset. And, you know, um, and very, I don't know, very brazen. Like she said, I mean, there was times in public, like, at, you know, and every what bothers me is every, ha every memory that should have been a happy memory was ruined because of this. We went to Disneyland when we were little or Disney World um, and he abused me at the hotel there. He, we went to a water park, um, an indoor water park that was really cool when we Huge. lived in Germany. And um, he, both of us at different points while we were there during the day, pulled us aside and molested us there. And um, even like she said, movie nights with other people in the room, he'd have you come sit on my lap and watch the movie and put a blanket over us and nobody knew his pants were down and you're sitting on his lap, you know, with himself exposed underneath the blanket. Um, and so there was a lot of things that were very brazen looking back. I can't even believe he got away with and um, a lot of memories that should have been happy ones. My very first sleepover I ever had friends over. Um, I think I was about eight or nine years old and we had a guest room. So I had maybe, I don't know, three or four friends over and we had a big bed in the guest room that we all slept in together for the sleepover. And my dad came in in the middle of the night, took me out of the bed, took me back over to my bedroom to molest me and left me there. And I was so stressed. Do I go back into the room? Do I stay in my room? Are my friends going to think I didn't want to hang out with them? Did any of them see him come in? That was the first and last sleepover I ever had with my dad at home. And I have a friend from junior high who now lives in Texas and she 
brought that up not too long ago. She goes, you know, I, you only ever invited me over to your house when your dad was out of town. And it never occurred to me till later as an adult, like, oh, we always played at my house and we only went to Amber's house when her dad was out of town or not home. And I was like, yeah, like I would not invite friends over anymore if my dad was around. Yeah. And I have a nine-year-old daughter right now. And that just breaks my heart to think, we've been talking about this too as mothers, as we see our children at certain stages of life and certain ages and how it um, triggers memories or, or just helps us realize and keep in perspective, that's young. That's a young, innocent child right there. My nine-year-old daughter, I can't imagine her having to go through that stress or that like cognitive dilemma of, what do I do in the middle of the night? Do I go back with my friends? Do I like change my underwear? Do I like, what in the world do I do as a nine-year-old? And I think when he would start coming more into the night, instead of trying to do things while we were, you know, awake, um, I think he thought he was protecting us from the abuse because we were sleeping, you know, but if you, I'm sure you've talked to a lot of people who have been sexually assaulted when their um, abuser thought they were asleep. Um, are cognitively impaired. So yeah. So um, you wake up, but you freeze because it's already in process. to pretend and not to engage. Well, and sometimes you don't wake up till it's already yeah. in process and it's frightening to all of a sudden try and stop it. And there was times we didn't share a room when we were really young. We didn't share a room till I think when I was in junior high. So we didn't know it was happening to each other. And that's what's odd too. For for the beginning of our childhood, she thought it was only happening to her. I thought it was only happening to me. And so that was an interesting time too, when we realized it was happening to both of us. And um, it's not like we ever talked about it. I maybe think it was three times in our childhood that we ever were even brave enough to speak any words out loud about this. To to each other about it. Yeah. Um, but as things escalated, especially in our teenage years, my dad um, definitely had some uh, mental illness challenges and paranoia and anger management issues. And it's funny, a, a few friends and, and, and who know my story, they're shocked by the sexual abuse. And I tell them that if anything, it was the verbal, the violently verbal explosions the manipulation that has taken longer for me to, to heal from. Um, to this day, I'm, phys- I'm physiologically triggered by loud, booming male angry voices. It sends me into like tremors. My body starts shaking, whether it's my teenage boy or a stranger on the street or whatever. Um, so that verbal and emotional abuse was huge and it was very extreme the last few years of our childhood for sure yeah our dad was undiagnosed bipolar um and as as he got older it got a lot worse which is common for somebody with a mental illness as they get um older and it's untreated it can definitely get worse no matter what the mental illness is and i remember into like our junior high and high school years my mom would always say you know, something's wrong with you. It's not normal to get angry this easily or, you know, you need to get help. And he, he never felt like it was his uh, problem. If everyone else would just not upset him so much, he'd be fine. He didn't, he wasn't the one that needed help. 
but there was a lot of incidences of explosions, yeah. of road rage, of having big meltdowns at stores over very little things, screaming at clerks at stores, screaming at um, waiters. Punched holes in walls. Oh, yeah. And, if he yeah. would be yelling at you, he I don't think he ever hit. He might have pushed or maybe slapped. He pushed or yanked a few times, but, but mostly, mostly it was objects. Yeah, that he would, and it was mostly intimidation. Yeah. Like he'd yeah. be yelling at my brother and he would punch the wall inches from his face or he'd throw a plate or he'd, yeah, like toss something across the room. Just a lot of intimidation. He liked throwing things when he was angry. And he'd throw things when he was fighting with my mom and then she'd quietly go get a broom and sweep it up or, you know, and it's just sad. A lot of the verbal and intimidation and... Um, and a lot of the paranoia, he always thought everything was a conspiracy. The man is out to get you. These companies are out to get you. I mean, just throwing fits at stores for like weird reasons that they're all taking advantage of us and stuff. So um, we had a lot to heal from. Yeah. Did you have any questions about any of that? Did we well, clarify the background? On behalf of our listeners, thanks for your courage to just share what you've shared. I have to remind your listeners, it's been, what, 25, 25. years of being in a safe environment, yeah, having <laughs> um, husbands that have shown us that all men are not like that, um, to be able to finally have the confidence and courage to, to speak out. In fact, I've been having many little pushes from God these last six months. Telling me it's time. It's time to tell your story to help others. Well, and the timing is interesting. And I'm sure you were probably going to get into this eventually that my dad is at end stage Parkinson's. He's in um, a care facility. And um, ironically, it was his birthday yesterday and we went and visited him. And he, I mean, it could possibly be the last time I see him alive because I don't, I don't know when's the next time I'm coming to Utah. And it it just, it is a weird dynamic talking about this because it has been a long time. And then seeing somebody literally on their deathbed and looking at him and thinking, I can't believe I was ever afraid of you because he's so weak and frail. And I mean, yeah. he's 69, but if I showed you a picture of him, you would think he was 90. I mean, he really. And that actually is kind of a healing perspective too, of realizing you don't have power over me anymore, mentally, psychologically, physically, and at all. Like how, but also giving ourselves grace going, it's okay that I was scared of this man, even though he's not scary anymore. Yeah. The epitome of my father, the most imperfect man I know, and the one who's taught me the most about the atonement of Jesus Christ, the epitome of my father was yesterday in his little apartment at the care facility it was his birthday, so he had two or three friends stop by while we were there. A couple came who we have never met before. They were just ranting and raving over how good my dad was to them. He is the best neighbor ever, my dad. Oh, he was the best home teacher we've ever had. We love your dad so much. He's gone above and beyond in so many ways. He helped us build and move a shed. Like They went on about how awesome and friendly and wonderful and service oriented my dad was he was that way our whole childhood too and he actually said after everything kind of came out he tried to overcompensate in some areas of his life to somehow make up for what he knew he was doing wrong 
Um, not that that justifies anything, but that is the hypocrisy or the dichotomy that we were living with. His way of paying penance or something. If I'm a hundred percent in every other area of my life, maybe it'll make up for these wrongdoings, which obviously it doesn't, but that's kind of where he justified it, where to us, it just looked like hypocrisy. Very multidimensional man. One of the things in that segment, um, it just helps me understand how isolated you were in this trauma and this abuse is that you only talk to each other three times about it. Yeah. In our whole childhood. In your whole child. And, and I, even now as adults, we we were talking a lot this weekend preparing for this and we were like, wow, there's a lot of things we're talking about that we've never that we talked about. Really and I, about and I realized just the isolation you were in that even you, even you, as you became aware, you were both. I like to use the term survivor. You're victims, obviously, but survivor, some of people walking the road have invited me to use that vocabulary. Even though you're walking the same road as survivors, that the isolation that was forced upon you. And, you know, and so it helps me understand why you didn't talk. I think you're going to talk about where you finally did start to talk to people. But there's no owner's manual. There's no roadmap. There was no, you know, it's just, pure hell you were walking yeah but here you are cognitive enough of the hell you're in that you don't want people to be in the same hell your friends and even though you can't well, explain to each your other friends, too. yeah yeah and you probably each other and you're the only two maybe we didn't mention this in the beginning there's there's four kids growing up in this home two boys and you two that are both survivors of sexual and emotional abuse but so yeah, keep sharing your story. That's one thing that I want to point out. Satan is crafty. Um, isolation is one of his biggest tools. He wants us to feel alone in our trials. He wants us to feel like we're the only one. He wants us to feel like there's no hope and there's no one out there that feels like we feel or that has ever been through anything like what we've been through and that we are the weird, odd duck that nobody will understand, in fact, that we will like anger by, by saying anything. And also, um, my dad was very intentional about, I mean, we were basically brainwashed from the littlest, littlest age. Again, or groomed, you know. Yes, and growing up groomed. in the church, one of the biggest things was mom and I were married in the temple. We, you know, we grew up knowing the importance of an eternal marriage. We sang, you know, I love to see the temple. Families are forever. And he put that onus on us. He, that responsibility was ours to make or break. He told us multiple times, if you ever do tell someone, it will destroy your mom. It will destroy our family. It will destroy an eternal family. Do you want to be responsible for that? And growing up in the 80s and 90s, wow. we didn't really know a lot of people that were divorced. So the idea of divorce sounded scary in general, but also within the church context of an eternal marriage. Anyways, okay, back to the story. Um, when I was 16, <laughs> my dad and I went out for a little driver's lesson. I mean, this should be like just a fun, regular, you know, coming of age type experience. And I had prayed long and hard the day or two before um, going. I know I need to, I was old enough and confident enough, just barely. I was still so, so timid and so scared. 
that I knew I needed to talk to my dad and, and set my boundaries and tell him to stop. At the end of that driver's lesson, when it was just him and I sat in that car and said, dad, I need to tell you something. You can't touch me anymore. I refuse. I put my foot down. Like, I promise you, if you touch me again, I will tell. And he knew I was serious. He didn't touch me again after that. Also in that conversation was, if you touch my sister again, I will tell. That was the biggest source of grief and guilt for me. It still is that I did not protect my sister like I should have, like a big sister is supposed to do. And so that's what I was doing in that moment. I was like, the thing that gave me the most courage was I'm doing this for my sister. I need to stop it for her as well as for me. He promised. He promised he would stop. Um, and like many men with an addiction, women, uh, anyone with an addiction, I'm sure he tried, but it didn't last at all for Amber. Um, so unbeknownst to me, and really I think I was just an ostrich with my head buried in the sand, it was easier to be ignorant than to really delve into the, the fact that my sister was most likely still being abused. So for three more years, um, Amber was put forth even more, I think, extreme and prolific abuse. Um, well, and I never knew that they had this conversation at that time. And I didn't know it had stopped for her. And I didn't know that she had threatened them. And I never came forward and told her it was still happening. Um, so when she did find out that it was, I think that gave you the courage to finally. And this was also when the verbal abuse and, and the violence like just really escalated too in our home. We were just definitely walking on eggshells no matter what. Um, so then fast forward three years and I'm 19 and Amber's um, 15. And our family just really is hanging by a thread because of how much anger and explosions, you know, everything has escalated so much. And my mom and dad were seeing the bishop um, for kind of couples therapy or whatever to try to salvage um, their marriage. And they finally decided to get us kids involved. Um, again, I think basically for free therapy with the bishop. And um, so for a week, I knew I'd have an appointment with this homeward bishop. Um, and my mom just kept saying, tell him everything. I was the most shy wallflower girl and bottled everything up. And she just really wanted me to talk. And I told her point blank, you don't know what you're asking of me, mom. My mom was absolutely clueless. She had no idea that any of the sexual abuse was going on. Um, and I know she has a lot of guilt over that. And I have a lot of empathy for the fact that I can't even imagine as a wife and mother, not, not, not having any clue. But anyway, so I fasted and prayed and um, just knew I needed to tell the bishop for the first time in my life, tell anyone but Amber what was going on in our home. Um, growing up in the church, there's a lot. I don't know how to describe this exactly. So with all of the manipulation and brainwashing that my dad had put us through, even at the age of 19, I knew that I would be destroying my family, at least on the surface, that the marriage was not going to be able to um, survive. 
even at that point, it seemed so counterintuitive to everything I had been taught in the church of, you know, of uh, having these eternal marriages held sacred and protecting them. And I was feeling so much like Abraham being asked to sacrifice Isaac at the altar. I was being asked to sacrifice my family at the altar. The only thing that gave me courage enough, because I still at this time, it absolutely amazes me. I still had no hatred, no anger, no animosity towards my dad. It was complete fear and confusion. And the only thing that led me to tell the bishop was the, the thought that kept coming from God. This is the only way to save your family in the long run. This is the only way to save your dad. It's not going to be easy, but this is the only way to save them. So I did. I went and we talk, we kind of laugh about Bishop Roulette every once in a while, how, you know, the bishops don't want to necessarily be bishops and, and we don't get to choose our bishops. But I had exactly the right man at that moment in my life who handled <laughs> these very grave, unexpected things that I told him in such a compassionate, empathetic way. And again, I had never had any priesthood holder in my life. I don't know. I never had an example of, of a priesthood holder in my life treat me that way with such respect, with such... Um, he made you feel safe. Yeah. I had never felt safe with a priesthood holder ever before. Um, so I needed that. Like That was a miracle in and of itself. What was interesting, though, was after all was said and done, we talked for over an hour. Um, things were very different in the 90s as far as procedural um, requirements and things like that. And he told me at the end of the conversation, will you be okay to go back home? Because I need to do this right. I need to talk to my stake president. I need to talk to your sister um, to confirm these things. I, I need to make sure I do this right. Are you going to be okay to walk back home? This was a Thursday night, you know, like a seven o'clock interview. I didn't know any different. I had lived with this all my life. What's another day or two? Or, you know, it's like, because he warned me it might be a few days. Okay. It ended up being six days that I lived in my home with my abuser, knowing that I had just like buried a few landmines, not knowing when they were going to explode, knowing that I had just completely disrupted the future of my family forever, but nobody else knew except for Amber. Amber, I had actually talked to before the bishop's interview and asked her, what do you think? Should I tell the bishop? How can I tell the bishop? Like, this was a lifelong secret. And she actually begged me not to tell because, again, we were so scared, so brainwashed. And she, yeah, and I remember that conversation. She said, you know, because of mom wanting us to go talk about our family problems, I really think nothing's going to get better if we don't tell about the abuse. And she thought this was in the past tense, right? And I guess I must have given her a look that she goes, Amber, is is he still touching you? And I just started crying. And she said, okay, I told that man, if he ever touched you again, 
I was going to tell. And I think that like gave you the confidence, like mm-hmm. I'm doing it. I'm doing yeah. it now. Yeah. And the begging her not to, it seemed looking back, I'm like, it seems weird that I wouldn't want you to. I, you would think that you'd want the relief of, oh good, to somebody's finally going to rescue me. But um, I was telling her, you get so used to the dysfunction. And it seems odd that we were trying to save this family that was in so much dysfunction, but the living in the dysfunction is still all you know, and the unknown of what's going to happen when all this implodes feels more scary than staying in the dysfunction. So, so Amber, definitely, even though she begged me not to, she gave me the courage and the fortitude to tell the bishop because all of a sudden, you know, mamas have bear claws. Well, sisters do too. My sister bear claws came out and I said, okay, I made a promise and that that's it. That sealed the deal. And I told the bishop, but yeah, so for six days afterwards, we had to pretend normal. Um, Amber got to talk to the bishop that Sunday. So I talked to him Thursday night. Amber talked to the bishop Sunday. And then I, I'm pretty sure it was not until Wednesday when the bishop finally sat down with my mother and told her about the sexual abuse. And um, that was probably the biggest night from hell ever oh, that yeah. we, our family experienced. So I, and, and what was really bad was she said goodbye to everyone, you know, gave us little, you know, our nightly instructions. Okay, I'm going to go talk to the bishop. We knew what was going to transpire in that meeting. She was so blindsided. I wanted so badly to somehow warn her, but like, there's no way. So she went and talked to the bishop. 20 minutes later, I get a phone call from her in tears. Will you please tell your dad to come to the bishop's office? He needs to come here right now. I think you know what it's about. So then I got to be the messenger to tell dad Mm. to go to the bishop's office. Not even 10 or 15 minutes after that, my dad came home exploding to the world. They're going to crucify me here. I can't believe we just moved back to Utah for this to all come out. And like, and oh, and then he would yell at my mom. If you were, you know, more of a wife and, you know, would have sex with me more then maybe this wouldn't have happened. Like everything was blame on everything else. And just so you know, your daughters are virgins. So I didn't violate them like you think. He did everything but penetrate. So that was good on him that he thought that that meant that, you know, we were still fine. Um, But yeah, so. So this still no cops, no anybody. My dad's here thrashing around, screaming, swearing and throwing things. And then about 10 minutes later, um, the police came and separated everyone, took my dad out. And then the police reports. I would love Amber to talk about the police reports because she has a better memory of this than me having to somehow write down our 19 years of life on, you know, five pages. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure I filled up a whole composition book and (laughs) in one way it was cathartic because I had never told the details of my story, but on the other hand, it was the scariest thing I ever did. Yeah. So I filled out pages and pages of every detail I could remember about the abuse, but, um, I handed it over to the cop and I mean, it had probably been a while, a couple hours and it was like midnight by this time. Yeah. He reads it and I'm just watching him sit there reading it, feeling so nervous. And he just starts tearing up and he looks at me and he goes, I can't use any of this. 
we had just moved back to Utah. Um, my dad was military. We moved a lot growing up. And the way the court systems, and I don't know if it still is or not, but the way it was back then, they could only charge him for anything that had happened in Utah. Um, it didn't matter what happened to me prior to that. My sister hadn't been touched in three years. So, um, so I, he just was like, I need dates. I need times. I need more detail. And um, like, how do you, how do you do that when it's two to three to four times a week for nine, well, for me, 16 years? I couldn't tell you, you know, it's two in the morning here or midnight there, 10 o'clock there in the middle of the day there, like Tuesday, Sunday, Saturday, like it didn't matter. So the police had nothing concrete evidence. Now to my dad's credit though, he never did once deny it. He had every justification and excuse under the book. He minimized it, but he didn't. But he never lied about it or denied it happening to our credit because otherwise like it would have been the classic he said she said case there wasn't as much evidence in utah to uh convict him of because most of the abuse had happened before we moved to utah and all of it for andrea had happened before we moved to utah so now here we are finally able to have a chance for justice and we're not getting it because of the moves and the air force and the timing and everything he did to us anyway so my grandma was very very influential um your, in this Provo. Is your mother your father's my father's mother. mother and her mama bear claws came out and i did not understand that as a 19 year old now that i'm a mother i do a little bit more i definitely felt betrayed i think we both did by our grandma a little bit that she sure. sunk tens of thousands of dollars into my dad's defense gave got, got him got him the very best attorney in provo at the time and um wow and a year into this um my dad Ended up, well, and here's some things that I still don't understand. I would love to look up the police reports and stuff eventually, but um, they couldn't prosecute against anything that had happened to me at all because I was 19. I was not a minor anymore. And according to them, nothing had happened in Utah at all with me, which is not quite true, but that's all right. Um, And so I was completely out of the picture legal wise they told me that i could i could civilly sue him that doesn't um bring about any punishment you know as far as jail time or anything but i could civilly sue him for money like i don't want money but like what what good does that do to heal me so and and we were still so i mean even though this was a whole year still so traumatized like i couldn't even look at my dad the the thought of testifying against him and being in the same room as him absolutely sent me into panic attacks and well um, and that's where we're different I wanted to testify but I was 15 and I had to get my mom's permission and she had told the police no unbeknownst to me she didn't give me the option she said you wrote your police report that's all we need and so I just thought it wasn't an option. Later, I found out it was an option that I could have testified, but she told them no, because she thought it would just be too hard for me or that it would, you know, yeah. traumatize me more. Um, and it kind of still makes me mad that I didn't get the option or the opportunity to do that. Yeah. So when all was said and done, my dad got one count for one to 15 years of 
of jail time and he got work release the whole time. So he, he got never one year, but it ended up being 10 months. Yeah. He never he got did work release. He never did go to the prison. He just was in the Provo County jail and went to work every day and basically got free room, well, and, room and board. But yeah, so it's really weird to me, even cognitively now to think, why was I able to forgive my dad, which we'll get into, but I still have such a hard time forgiving the justice system that according to our great country's justice, 10 months. That's what our life was worth. 10 months, <laughs> 10 months. is what our childhood was worth. Mm-hmm. That's a great way to frame it up. 10 months is what our childhood was worth. And, and, and it's not like just your childhood. It's obviously you're doing a good job of talking about the ongoing trauma that exists in your, throughout your adult life. Even noisy men, even as your own kid, just constantly being re-traumatized and brought back to the realities of your youth. Even though the sexual and emotional abuse obviously has ended, it's part of your life. Yeah. And luckily we have some pretty awesome husbands that know, and even my kids, like one of my triggers is I can't have anyone stand right behind me. <laughs> and I'll remind my kids, hey, you can't stand there. Sorry. That's, that's not a it's safe good, place for me. It's good you tell them. Yeah. And, you know, especially my littler kids, they don't know why yet. And that's fine. But yes, yeah, so we definitely have some triggers that we just kind of set a little boundaries for and try to prevent a little bit. But yeah, there's some that just aren't ever going to be all the way preventable. And it's just part of no matter how healed I will be spiritually, mentally, psychologically, I, my body will still physically react at certain situations. I still have PTSD and I will most of the rest of my life, I think. And luckily that has dissipated over the years. It's not nearly as frequent or as strong. But yeah, every once in a while. One of both of your gifts is cognitively being aware of what's going on with you, but knowing that PTSD is part of your reality. And it's, and both, and so you're doing a really good job of communicating cognitively and being cognitively aware about the realities of where you are and where you'll be. Many, many years of therapy. That's that's, all I can say. (laughs) Well, and I was about to say one good thing that came out of his plea deal and his sentencing was that it was court ordered that he see a psychiatrist and do therapy. He finally got the help he needed for his bipolar. He finally got on meds. And then I found out later that even after he got out of jail, he continued therapy and he continued getting help. And so as we got older and as I had kids, um, I was, you know, debating if I was ever going to let them know him or meet him. Um, I was kind of trying to navigate that by seeing what Andrea did because she was older than me and had kids before me. But like she was saying with her kids, like I would slowly tell them things like, well, you know, grandpa wasn't a very good dad, but he's trying hard to be a better grandpa or he's he had a lot of sickness and illness and he's trying to get better and you know which is true but and then as they got older we started to maybe tell a little bit more but yeah yeah and there was just lots of boundaries of yeah we can go you know spend an hour at grandpa's house but um especially I had three girls first so I was definitely very protective of them and so yeah never let alone you know, with any family member, really. But and even when, um, when you first had them, you didn't want yeah. Sean bathing them or changing yeah. their diapers. And that was a, a thing you had to navigate to even trust him at first oh, because of the PTSD. Um, Amber and Andrea, just great job um, 
and I realized that it, it's hard in an hour and a half podcast to do a multi-decade story with both of you, but you've done such a great job. Now, one of the things I'm wondering, and maybe listeners are wondering, is we know you've healed to some extent, not the PTSD, but the spiritual healing and just what you've done. Because I want you to talk to people that maybe have no hope they'll ever heal. And they have no hope about their future. They'll no hope they can look at you two just for a moment. You are wonderful women with one, maybe not perfect marriages. No one has that, but you've got great marriage. You've got great family. You're married to men. Your abuser was a man. Um, so you have healed to a point where you're living incredible lives. And you've also broken the chain. This isn't carried on to your kids. And part of that was creating boundaries with your own father. But talk about healing, because that's something, a gift you can give others as part of your story. Definitely. And um, yeah, just to clarify, I, I also um, inherited the bipolar depression. I definitely struggled with depression, some um, anxiety and panic attacks every once in a while. But, but that is definitely more minimal. So I want to talk about a few turning points that really paved the way into my healing and also to emphasize that it took over 10 years, which is still incredible to me. That's still so short in the scheme of things. It took me over 10 years to really feel the peace and full healing that the atonement of Jesus Christ brings. Um, I say, I joke to some of my friends sometimes, you know, when you're pregnant and you gain all this pregnancy weight and it takes a whole nine months to do that. And sometimes we, you know, expect to lose all that weight in a week or two. Well, the same thing happens with trauma especially trauma that was over the course of a whole childhood. We can't expect to heal in just one moment or one week or one year even. A lifetime of trauma will take a lifetime to heal from, and that's okay. It's not a race. Um, one of my first turning points was shortly, maybe six months after, all, all had um, come about and, and opened up. and. Uh, and I, I have heard lots of things about how the question why or why me is not productive or healthy and healing. Um, it actually was for me, and I needed to know the answer. And I prayed to God quite often about why. Because, um, again, one of those little, whether it's real doctrine or not, but one of the things we were taught was our earthly state. And where we ended up in our earthly state was dependent on how worthy we were in the premortal life. And so I thought I had done something pretty bad in my premortal life. I was not worthy to have been born into a functional family, right? Wow. It was something that I must have done wrong. Wow. That's just logical based on what we were taught as a, you know, as youth. Um, so I needed to ask God, why? Well, you know, what did I do to deserve this? Well, my answers came very clear in my mind one night, almost a vision type thing that I saw myself in the premortal world being told the bare bone basics of what my assignment was going to be on earth, where they wanted to put me, knowing full well the pain that was going to be involved. And the greatest gift that we've been taught about, that we've been given as agency, that didn't start here on earth, that started in the pre-mortal world. I was given the agency 
to say yes or no to being born in the family that I was being born into. That was the revelation I received. And I said yes. And I said yes for three very distinct reasons. And this was my answer that I got from praying that God told me, you said yes, because you knew that if you said no, someone else would have to be born in your place. I couldn't let that happen. I said yes, because I knew that my lived experiences would be able to ultimately help others. I said yes, because I knew I needed to be born in the covenant, in the gospel, to know my Savior Jesus Christ, and to be able to fully partake of his atonement, and to be born in the lineage that I was born in. I had come from rich pioneer stock. I don't know exactly yet what that meant, but the word lineage kept coming to me. You needed this lineage. Those are the three reasons I needed the answer to my why. That was the first step to my healing to understand that it wasn't something I did wrong. God wasn't mad at me. I'm skipping a few parts because I was really, really mad at God for a while. And that's a very natural process to healing. Please don't ignore the anger step because it is very needful. And that's actually how this answer to my prayer happened because I was yelling at God. We're taught to pray so respectfully and, and, and so honorably to God. Well, he and I got our close relationship because I actually humanized him a little bit and I yelled at him. And this is how I got my answer. Um, and I think he forgives me for yelling at him. <laughs> I went through a very angry period of the, with God, too, where my whole childhood I had prayed that it would stop. My whole childhood I'd wished that my dad would die or that he would stop or that God would take away the abuse. And when he didn't, I started to question, does he hear me? Does he care? Why even pray? And so as I got into my teen years, there was a period of time where I literally just stopped praying. And then after my dad went to jail and I was having a really rough time with um, all the aftermath of everybody knowing about the abuse and having a hard time with how my mom was handling things and I finally decided to pray again, and I was kind of like, this is my Hail Mary. I'm going to give you one more chance. I'm going to pray harder than I've ever prayed, um, and, I'm, and I'm, you need to let me know that you're there because I don't feel it. And during that night when I was praying, I physically felt arms wrap around me. And I mean, I literally had to stop and turn around because I thought maybe my brother or my mom or someone had walked into my room and wrapped their arms around me you know, seeing I was praying and were trying to comfort me and nobody was there. And I knew right then that through the Holy Spirit, God was comforting me and letting me know that he was in fact there. He does care. He does hear me. And he gave me a very physical reminder. I literally felt his arms around me. And that was kind of a turning point for me. I didn't know where to go from there, but at least I knew I wasn't alone. I knew God was real. And I knew that he heard me. That's very interesting because I had no idea Amber had an experience like that too. Um, and I would like to say something really quick about prayer in general. Um, it's very hard navigating relationships with men on a platonic level, on a professional level, on just acquaintance level in the church. Um, it's very hard when you're abused by by a man to be able to then like have normal, just 
acquaintance level relationships with men, let alone a relationship with a male deity that is that I'm supposed to be submissive to. Um, to this day, I still don't kneel to my God. And I know that sounds very sacrilegious. I know he understands and he's okay with that. I think it sounds great. That's um, funny because I say most of my prayers laying in bed or yeah. in the car. I don't kneel a and, lot either. And that's okay. Um, <laughs> I didn't know that about you. I used you. to feel guilty about that. but um, I think it's but, yeah. just terrific. So, and, and prayers definitely are a little inconsistent. And, and they're still a little bit hard sometimes um, to submit and, and to, to pray. Even though we're to- like, I consider myself totally healed. But it, it is still that navigating the male relationships in my life, I guess, including God. Um, so I had a really, really dark point, even after the whys got answered, still struggled with depression so badly. I flunked out of BYU. Um, group therapy in BYU, though, was the reason that I was there. So even though I didn't succeed scholastically, group therapy for sexually abused victims at BYU for BYU students literally saved my life. I think it saved me from um, killing myself. Uh, So I'm very grateful for that. I was in a very dark place after uh, I left BYU. And I had a very similar experience to what Amber just mentioned. Um, Clinically, I think you could have described it as a panic attack, laying in bed, you know, late at night, trying to sleep and feeling the most horrible weight and dark depression or depression. Like it almost felt like a 500 pound anvil was on my chest. Like I could not move. I was, I could not breathe. I thought I was going to die. Like it felt that, that oppressive. And the darkness was just so thick and like intangible. And so I started praying a panic prayer, knowing that like, okay, I need something to save me right now. Cause I, thought I was going to like have a heart attack or I don't know. It was awful. And I prayed, please let this pain stop. Like I was crying and it was painful. Like it was horrendous. And finally, all of a sudden, the weight and the dark angst left. I took a few big breaths. And like Amber said, all of a sudden, I felt this peace and this warmth and this tangible embrace around me. I've talked to my aunt before. She's like, oh, that was probably all of the women in your life and your ancestors, like, just rallying around around you. I don't know if it was Christ himself, if it was angels, if it was my, my sweet, you know, ancestors beyond the veil, but there was someone there that embraced me and, and filled me with the most sweet, love and peace at that moment. And while that wasn't the end of my healing process, that was the, the, the seed of hope going, now I know what that feels like. And that's what I want to feel like again. Like, how do I capture that feeling and have that instead of the 95% of the time where I felt the opposite? Um, yeah. So there was a lot of therapy over the years. There was medication and doctors. There was bishops, you know, and lots of, oh, lots of books and articles and conference talks. I clung to Richard G. Scott's talks from the 90s that talked about healing 
from abuse and just healing in general. And we need to give a shout out to Elder Karen. Is that how you say it? Karen. Karen in this last conference. Because literally since Richard G. Scott. about abuse. Since Richard G. Scott in the 90s, I have never heard. And even that, I look back on it and it was still like a few things that make me cringe. There's a few things in there that that some people have told me were hard for them. Oh, definitely. But there was still a paragraph or two that I'm like, this is the hope that I want. Like, like uh, I like memorized a paragraph out of there at one time, like when I was 20 going, this is exactly what I'm looking for. This is my roadmap to healing. Like, this is what I'm striving for. That one paragraph in Richard G. Scott's um, talk from healing from abuse. And that's all I had to go on. I even at, at BYU, I scoured their library looking for any LDS content on how to heal from abuse. There was a whopping five or six books. Most of them were fiction. There was one self-help book that I devoured because um, the non-LDS stuff was way too cringeworthy and way too explicit and way too triggering. I'm like, I need something to help me heal my spirit. And there was nothing out there in the 90s, nothing that I could find. And a find. lot of things that you'd find would kind of make you feel guilty that if you didn't, if you didn't fight, if you didn't, yeah. you know, tell, if yeah. you didn't stop it, then you were somehow um, involved in the abuse or to blame. But Elder Kiron, you know, yeah. three weeks ago, I've listened to his talk at least five times now in the last three weeks. I completely bawled my eyes out for the first two times I listened to his talk. Those are words from an empathetic, healing man that understands. And he's a priesthood holder. And he spoke words of healing. And I'm like, this is what we've needed. Elder Holland's broken vessel was close. But I just love the evolution that I'm seeing in the leaders of our church and the softening that I'm seeing and the realizing that we need more words of empathy and love and and hope that it's okay to be broken, but it won't be like that forever. It's okay to be broken, but you won't be like that forever. My process of healing, I also did a lot of therapy at BYU, and it was very comforting to do the group therapy and know that you weren't the only one who has struggled with this. Not that it's great that other people have been abused, but at least it makes you feel like God's not picking on you. It breaks <laughs> that tool of Satan's isolation. isolation. Like that very first eye-opening going, oh my goodness, I'm not the first LDS child that had ever been molested by my father. I thought it was a once in a million yeah. thing. And then after getting married, um, I finally had the courage to basically sit down with my dad and confront him and ask him some questions and try and get some answers to things that, I, you know, thought would be healing, but honestly sitting down with him and it was in a safe environment. It was at my grandma's house. My husband was there. Um, It didn't really help. Like I thought I would somehow get, uh, make sense out of the nonsense. But again, his reasoning, his excuses, you know, I just, there was no, I just wanted to know why did you do this? How did you turn out this way? Like what? And didn't get the answers I was wanting. So that wasn't as healing as I hoped. Just but, a comment. I, and maybe you're going to say this. I'm glad you did that because now you know that what that, com- you won't be wondering for the rest of your life what that yeah, conversation would have been like. And I think it was like. healing for me to finally have the strength to say the things to him that I wanted yeah. to. I think he thought since the physical act of abusing us was done, that we were done being hurt. Wow. And so I think it was eye-opening to him to know we are still hurting we do still have PTSD from that. At that time I was married. I was in my young twenties. I didn't have kids yet, but, um, I would still have nightmares. Right. I would still have a lot of triggers. There was a lot of triggers 
um, in my marriage and in my sex life I was working through. And my husband was very patient with me with a lot of those, but my dad had no idea of the continued ramifications that he had caused. And so I think that was slightly eye-opening to him. I mean, he's never going to fully understand, understand. but I think he thought, oh, you know, my girls are okay. They've grown up. They've gotten married. Like I didn't mess them up that bad. And I wanted him to kind of know, no, like we're still pretty messed up, but we're just good at pretending normal. (laughs) Both of our parents love to um, say how proud they are of us and how um, like almost like they're taking credit for the fact that we didn't grow up with, you know, like completely broken, miserable failures of a life. And they're like, well, uh, you know, I guess we didn't mess you up that badly. Did you hear him yesterday? Ironically, so he could, he's very hard to understand. He's end stage Parkinson's. He's very mumbly, but he kept saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And he said, I am so proud of you guys. And you're so blessed. But he said, despite me. And I was like, whoa, this is the first time I've ever heard him say, I'm so proud of you guys. And I'm so glad you're doing so well, despite me. And he kept saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He kept mumbling that. And I was like, this man knows he's dying. (laughs) Here's the other dichotomy that's really weird. My dad has a complete and utter testimony of this gospel in his utter frailness and weakness. He eventually got rebaptized. He lost, you know, he got excommunicated, went to jail. Uh, It took him like 12 years as well. But he eventually got rebaptized all of his and for better or for worse, Amber and I still have mixed feelings about this. All of his previous covenants and um, uh, blessings, priesthood blessings, were all restored when you get rebaptized. How do I feel about that? Because, you know, ultimately you say, well, justice will prevail in the afterlife. Well, technically, if we believe our doctrine, he got rebaptized, so he's been forgiven of all of that. That is justice. There will be no more punishment. But anyway, so wow. he bore his testimony to me. Um, last October when I was visiting this very sweet, broken man, the most imperfect man I know. And he bore his testimony to me about how much he does believe in his savior, Jesus Christ, and how remorseful he was. And he still has no idea how much he really has affected and hurt us. But in his limited ability, he apologized yet again. He bore his sweet little tender testimony and, and I, I'm to a point in my life where I was able to hold his hand and say, I know, and I love you. And, oh. and, See, and thank I, you for that. I still believe that after he dies, that he's going to have to experience <laughs> the pain that we felt so he can fully understand it. Cause I feel like his, his repentance process and his atonement process won't be complete until he actually knows the feeling of the pain that he causes. So I, I feel like personally, God's going to give him that feeling of what, what he made us feel before he's completely released of it. But that's just maybe a a comfort thing for me, but my boundaries are a little bit stronger than Andrea's. I don't see him as often. I've never been to his house. He's never been to mine. Um, when we come to Utah, I see him occasionally. Some, sometimes when we've come, I've just texted his wife and said, I, I don't think I can see him this trip. Um, I had never had like an apology and the remorse and like how he was saying yesterday, I've had one apology letter from him that he wrote when he was in jail. So I figured it was a therapy assignment. So I didn't take much stock in it. So yesterday was kind of interesting to me. I didn't know if it was, was on, the first time on my deathbed. It? I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. Or if it was sincere, 
But he and I have had, had actually several talks like that over the years. But see, again, like yeah. I, I don't talk to him or see him as much as she does. But um, the big thing about my healing was becoming a mom. And um, so I'm, I'm just going to end with this on my healing and then you can end. Um, that becoming a mom, I realized like I didn't want to be angry. I didn't want to bring that into my kids' lives or into my marriage. I realized I can't compartmentalize hate and that um, I can't hold hate in my life and not have it seep into the other areas of my life and that I needed to let go of the hate for him so it wouldn't ruin the other relationships in my life. Um, And then seeing Andrea's progress and healing always inspired me and wanted me to work harder towards my healing and seeing how she navigated relationships with him and with her kids um, made me feel the desire to like, at least let my kids know who he is and see him and meet him. And um, we're not close with him. They're not close with him, but I've at least let them experience who he was trying to become as in the later years of his life. And before he got really sick and everyone who meets him, like she said, his neighbors and stuff talk about how nice he is, what a great guy he is. And so my kids know him as that, but they also know he wasn't that way with me. And, you know, and that's where I'm at. I, I feel peace with the situation. Um, I don't feel I'm fully healed, but I don't have that anger anymore. Yeah. So I think the two other most important things in any healing process from any wound is forgiveness is not for the person who hurt me. Forgiveness is for me. And when I came to that Finally, that epiphany, probably in my late 20s, early 30s, that, yes, it helped that my dad was trying to change. Yes, it helped that my dad was being at least a little bit remorseful. That didn't matter. What mattered was what was in my heart and what mattered was what I needed for. I needed forgiveness. My dad didn't need me to forgive him. I needed to forgive him for my own sanity, for my own soul. Um, and the, I just couldn't keep living with the pain and the angst and that, that tension for the rest of my life. It was just really painful. Um, the other turning point was, I can trying to cognitively figure out what the atonement of Jesus Christ does for us. I'd been grown up being taught that it's for repentance. It's for when we make mistakes. It's for when we sin. Then we repent, and then he takes it away. We're free, like we're we're clean and free, like if we were baptized. Well, that's all well and great. What's the formula for when it wasn't my mistake, for when it wasn't my sin, for when it wasn't anything that I had control over? There was no formula given to me as a child or as a youth. The atonement didn't seem to apply, but yet I instinctively knew it did. And then I found Alma chapter 7, verse 11 and 12, where it talks about how Christ um, took upon us the pains and afflictions, not just our sins. And so the more I got into the scriptures and the more I prayed and the more I really got my own relationship with Jesus Christ, I realized, you know what? It works the same way. My Savior bled for me for every pain and and every heartache and every wound and every trigger that I've ever experienced, even though it was nothing that I was self-inflicted by. And that was a huge turning point um, to understand how that atonement and that pattern of healing can work with my Savior to the ultimate result of 
in 2006, I want to say, when we had back-to-back talks on forgiveness by Elder Faust and Elder and, and President Hinckley on forgiveness. Usually, whenever I hear the word forgive or forgiveness in a conference talk, I like shut down. It's a trigger word for me. I start feeling horrendous guilt and and um, and anger, really, um, and pressure. So I was waiting for that to come. And my husband was sitting on the opposite side of the room as me. And it didn't come. And I, you know, and I refocus on the talk. It's definitely about forgiveness. And I'm like, where is that guilt? Where is that weight of the world about to like press down on me? And I tangibly, I reached up to touch my shoulders, expecting there to be weight there. My husband looked at me at, right at that time and I mouthed the words, it's gone. Hmm. All that pain, those decades of wounds were gone. In that moment, I hadn't realized before. I'd been working on it for so long. It was such a desire in me to shed myself of that burden. But it was at that moment that I realized that my Savior had taken it from me, that that weight had been lifted, and that I was free And that is the feeling that I wish for any and everyone who has been wounded or gone through trauma in their life because it is the most refreshing and absolute godly feeling that I've ever felt, the lack of that burden. And that is the miracle of Jesus Christ's atonement. And that is the only way that I have been healed is through him. And if it hasn't happened for you, it will. It, it happens quicker for some and it happens slower for some. But um, forgiveness talks can be very triggering to people who are still working on forgiving. But then when it, you finally get that burden released, it can be like very joyful to hear those talks and know yeah. that, that you can have that peace. So if you're not there yet, then you skip know, those talks. <laughs> then just that's why I don't watch conference live anymore. I go back and I. I like, she'll tell me, oh, listen to this talk or that talk. And I pick and choose the ones that I think I can handle or ones that won't trigger me. And then listen it's interesting. Listen to Elder Kieron yes. over and over and over and again. Over the years, <laughs> I'm okay listening to more and more talks mm. about, you know, forgiveness because I'm at a better place. When I wasn't, I didn't. But before we end, we wanted to touch on some things to, that you don't do or things that <laughs> do that you should do if you're trying to support someone. To help someone. a friend or loved one. Yeah. So, you do the don'ts and I'll do the do's. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so when we're supporting people um, healing from trauma, um, don't say things to someone that's experienced trauma or abuse or that's wounded. Um, like preaching to them, quoting scripture to them, um, talking to them about forgiveness, like pushing a timeline for forgiveness. Um, <laughs> she's, Andrea wrote this quoting scripture, like ye ought to forgive one another for ye that forgiveth not his brother, his trespasses standeth condemned before the Lord for there remaineth the greater sin. Oh, That's wow. In DNC 64, nine, my well-meaning returned missionary brother 
quoted me that scripture in the effort to somehow salvage our family. He had good intentions to, you know, maybe one week off of his mission, thinking he was going to like pace our family back together and was basically telling me that I was in the greater sin because I was not forgiving my dad. And she kicked him out of the house. <laughs> yeah, it probably took me six months to talk to him again. Um, and so if you are triggered by things that a priesthood leader, um, somebody saying a talk, like it, as a don't, don't tell people that they're just being too sensitive. Um, you know, you need to be sensitive with them. Don't tell them that they're being too sensitive or that they're reading too much into something or that, you know, telling them why well, I thought the talk was good. Like if it triggered that person, you need to respect that and validate that. Um, what else? And then treat, treat people with kid gloves or awkward or pity or sympathy. Like we, if we share our stories, we don't want to be looked at differently and pitied. Um, and then give well-meaning advice. Um, I mean, if, if, if people want advice, they can ask for it. Or you can say, would you like my advice? And yeah. don't give unsolicited advice of how they can heal or what they should be doing. Saying things like, you know, time heals or everything happens for a reason. I mean, over time, you will experience healing, you know, but... It doesn't help in the moment. It doesn't help in the moment to say everything happens for a reason or... Um, justice will prevail, but just not in this next life, because that can be a confusing statement like we talked about. And don't put victims in a situation where they have to be around their abusers without warning them, without giving them the choice. Um, that happened to me multiple times, and it still is hard for me. Um, my family would get together and my dad would be invited to something and I wouldn't be given the choice or I wouldn't be told he would be there. Or if I was given the choice, then it was up to me to not attend the event instead of him. Like there's, there's times. It was always my dad that had the right to be there. And then we got to choose whether or not to be there because of our own discomfort. Instead of saying, dad, this is making me sit this one out because like he always had more rights in our family than we did. (laughs) And so as a family, if the abuse Mm -hmm. happens within a family, um, the, the victim should always be included before the abuser. There's times I sat out of events. I, I was by myself on Christmas Eve one year because my mom went with my brothers to my grandma's house um, and my parents were divorced by then, but that was tradition to do Christmas Eve at my grandma's and Christmas at ours. And I was left alone because I didn't want to be around my dad. So please don't put victims in a situation where they have to choose. Um, and then don't ask why they didn't tell or why they didn't tell sooner, or make them feel at fault for not stopping it, um, or why they didn't fight. You know? What to do? Ask sincere questions to better understand, and then listen. We love the quote. Um, Emily Bell Freeman says it the best, and so often, I will be here whenever you need me, and I will meet you wherever you are. I will meet you at whatever level in your journey you are with no expectations. Ask if I need a hug. Don't impose a hug on me. Um, and let, let me know that our friendship won't change just because you know my story now. Don't look at me with pity and sympathy, but don't hold me on a pedestal either. Let me still just be your peer and friend. Um, extend grace for all our triggers and good days and bad days. Help me laugh. (laughs) Help me laugh and find joy in the small things of life. Um, 
offer to just hang out. Adults need playdates too. Um, and just love us without judgment or advice needed. And like Amber said, healing and forgiveness is a process. It's not a race and there's no timeline needed. Because I hate when it's like, well, it's been a long time. Obviously we said it's been 25 years. I mean, you should be over it by now. It's been a long time or that happened so long ago. Or if somebody's had a one-time incident, um, not belittling that. Of, well, it just happened one time or or minimizing. Don't ever minimize Trauma what somebody's Trauma damages been no matter how often or how little one one event can had, damage you from the rest of your life. I've had yeah. other victims minimize it. Well, yeah. you've been through so much and you had a lifetime. I only was molested once. And I'm like, it's not a competition. It's the same Your one-time trauma is still trauma, you know? And almost, we grew up with it, so it just became normal. Where if somebody had a normal, happy, safe life, and then something disrupted that, like a one-time event, it almost could be more traumatizing because their safe world just was shaken up. Because they knew we better. We never had a we safe world. We didn't know better. Yeah. So I think sometimes a one-time trauma can be even worse. And so really validate that and listen to those people and don't, Make it seem like, well, I mean, it was one time and it was so long ago. You need to just get over it. And so for those of you who maybe have been through something that's different than our story that was maybe less severe or one time or a long time ago, your trauma is important too. And you need to heal from it too. And it's not going to be an easy process either. How do people get a hold of you? You've got a website we haven't talked about yet, tendermercysmightymiracles.com. Share with our listeners that we website. just started that, so. <laughs> well, and that how, website somebody... has been around for a while. I've been meaning to write a book for 25 years now. And um, other things are always just take precedence. But yeah, that, that title came from one of my favorite scriptures from 1 Nephi chapter 1, verse 20, where Nephi says that the tender mercies of the Lord are over all those whom he had, has chosen because of their faith to make them mighty even unto the power of deliverance because of my savior, Jesus Christ, I've been delivered. And I felt that tangibly when I read that Nephi, knowing that he had also been delivered. That is the theme of my life. We've experienced so many tender mercies and mighty miracles. And that's. Can people find you from that website? Yes. So tender mercies, MightyMiracles.com. It'll be there. We're writing a book, but it's still in process. <laughs> so we'll let you know later on when that's So listeners, to being yeah, in the show notes and when I post this on Facebook and Instagram, I'll tag you and so people can message you. Because yeah. your story is unique and so healing. And we're out of time, listeners. I've got a hard stop today, but I just wanted to share some thoughts that that there it's no way I can do justice to what you two have just shared. But the things, you know, the atonement, we do have this formula for sin-related need for the atonement. We have these steps. It's for it, I don't want to say it's mechanical. It's very sort of, we know how to do that. But what you've been walking and knowing intuitively that the atonement would heal you, but you talked about as a 10-year, and then you talked about the day you knew you were healed. And I just invite, it's a, that's a very customized thing that all of us will experience, the pain that comes into our life that's not sin-related. And it's a, I would just invite listeners to take what you've shared and say, that's how I'm, there's no formulas. 
it, but it's, it is there. It's a very organic process. And that, I feel like I'm still in process. Yes, definitely. But, um, I just thought that was beautiful what you shared. Thank I you. loved, um, you started this and I hope I can articulate this the way I want to. You started this with, you know, if I tell what happens, I'm going to mess up my family, but I'm going to save my family. And I, the thought came to me is you've not only saved your family, but you've forever changed the direction of your posterity. Yeah. And maybe as a 16-year-old girl, when you went to have that conversation, you weren't thinking about your six kids, your five kids, grandkids, but I think you've saved your eternal family for what you, the courage you had to step forward and, and the things that you're now able to pattern and teach in your family and break this cycle. Um, I think it's a, I think it's an incredibly courageous moment that led to immense pain in the short term that wasn't your fault. And just the dynamics, your family situation that changed and your father putting that back all on you. And I think of DNC 121, when you describe your father quite a bit, my other favorite scripture, definitely. Yeah. Um, but I think you've in some ways saved your family. I loved you asking for purpose in this and getting an answer from your pre-mortal experience. And I love what you said. You said, we have agency here. We had agency here. Of course we did. I've never thought about it quite like you said it though. And it gave, and I don't know that's true of everybody in every situation. So I love, but um, I love your personal revelation that was part of the healing. And I, when you said, if you don't go, someone else will, it just gave me an insight in your heart and that maybe your heavenly parents knew that somehow you could walk this road. And I love the relationship the two of you have together. Mm. Um, even though you live in different states and you're just in Utah today, and but you complement each other in such a beautiful, wonderful way. And um, you both just are living wonderful lives. And I'm thinking about your kids and your grandkids that's been a driving force is breaking the cycle. <laughs> I have all boys, so I am fiercely trying to raise yeah. men that will be good men in this world because we need more good men. And I just think how lucky are these kids to have you as moms and how lucky yeah. your husbands are. And Well, my parenting has definitely changed over the years. I kind of feel a little guilt and, and sorrow for my oldest three, especially because I was a very broken mom for those first okay. 10 years. So it's okay that it takes a little while to break the cycle. I definitely did and said a few things that I shouldn't have as a young mom, as a depressed mom. She as, was also navigating bipolar too. Yeah. So things were definitely not perfect, but man, it is very, um, yeah. Like you said, I love my kids so much that I'm so glad that they don't have to deal with what we did. Not that it was perfect. Well, definitely no, working on my, no parents yeah. are perfect, but, but yeah. you've been willing to, Listeners, we, I read this quote a lot. It's the wounded healer. It's certainly a prize. And you're wounded not because of sin. I want to be careful there. Um, a minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he or she speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led of a desert by someone who's never been there. So one of your gifts you've paid the price to have this gift in a way that's just unimaginable and incredibly unfair is what you're doing right on this podcast. And if you write this book and 
that you're not speaking theoretical about how the atonement works or how trauma works or how pain or immense whatever words I can use, you know. And so there'll be listeners that haven't been um, survivors of sexual abuse but need the principles you just shared. Because they're going to know someone. It happens way too often. It's the same pattern of healing no matter what the wound is. That's what I can't emphasize the most. No matter what heartache, it may be someone who's just lost somebody to a drunk driver or somebody who's just. Ironically, that's our cousin, Chris Williams. He's our cousin. Chris Williams is your cousin. That lost his family to a drunk driver. And he's been an inspiration to us as well. I know we know Chris Williams. And um, so that's one of the gifts you have. I also loved your nuance. So there's Elder Scott's talk that some have told me is triggering to them. Oh, there's definitely some but triggering parts. And so you're willing to honor that, but you didn't. And still take the paragraph still that you helps found me. found a paragraph in yeah. there that helped you. And I just think that, that gave me hope. <laughs> the nuance of that and, and even managing general conference where you'll not do it live. Yeah. So I would call that great maturity and developing boundaries that work for you. We're both very nuanced in taking the things in the gospel that help us and kind of leaving the things that are still painful and just continuing on. I think that's a really mature approach. And I think it's part of developing boundaries. It's very healthy. And some Latter-day Saints don't need that with General Conference. Every talk is just the balm of Gilead. There's a lot of faithful Latter-day Saints I know that can be triggered. And so they do it the way you do it. And it's mm-hmm. a very appropriate, faithful way. I tell my young adults and my husband, I love my Savior too much to ever leave this church, no matter how painful the culture can be sometimes. <laughs> but yes, we kind of try to let the culture sit but aside. It's people and people like you that are changing yes, the culture and bringing up these topics that are marginalized and and even sharing our story to to break down the stigma of sexual abuse and mental health. And we don't talk about those things enough yet. So many people are experiencing or know loved ones that are experiencing both of those things. Because that's Satan's tool. We need to break down those those secrets. And And I think you're pretty clear, but just so any listeners don't, I think you're pretty clear that your father had complete agency, that this wasn't a mental health issue. I feel like a lot of the violence and rage and emotional that abuse paranoia stuff was, was maybe mental illness, was, but everything else yeah, was, was very escalated by his untreated bipolar. But I don't believe his bipolar had much to do with this. Okay, like so any addiction, people. he was very, very um, heavily addicted to sex. So I think that's good. And I just yeah. think it, I think listeners would understand it, but I yeah. just want to make sure. Thank you. We've also had another um, author on the podcast, episode 515, Ryan Anderson, listeners. He wrote a book called The Choice to Leave Abuse. It would be very consistent with yes, what you've just shared. I listened to that one. And um, <laughs> so there's just, there's content out there. But, you know, Andrea and Amber, on behalf of our listeners, thank you for your courage. And thank you. And your vocabulary and your insights and your gifts and who you are. You're still young. You're 20 years younger than me, roughly, 15 years. Or, mm-hmm. And you will write this book and you will continue to talk about this. And you're at a spot where it's a perfect time to talk about this. And I love Elder Kierlin's talk. And to me, his talk plus your practical application because you've walked this road is what helps other people. So I'm going to do your last names again. Andrea Niehausen. 
And Amber Ayers, thank you so much. For, thank you. For being on this episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Thank you. Thank you.